This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, the, uh, the coaching, coaching vacancies around the NHL are filling up and filling up fast. Last week, last time we spoke, uh, we signed off last Thursday uh, with an interview with Spencer Carberry, now the head coach of the Washington Capitals. Uh, today, the Anaheim Ducks announced they have hired Greg Cronin, who we last saw behind the bench uh, over the past five, maybe six seasons with the Colorado Eagles. Um, previous assistant with the Islanders, assistant with the Toronto Maple Leafs. So uh, those two spots are filled. And as we found out over the weekend, although they won't make it official until July 1st, the Columbus Blue Jackets bench boss spots has now been claimed as well. It is a very familiar name, a Stanley Cup champion, a gold medalist. It is Mike Babcock here for comments about this and other CBJ issues. Is a great Aaron Ports line from The Athletic. Aaron, how are you today? Thanks so much for doing this. I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, the, the the pleasure is mine. So uh, I don't even know where to begin with Babcock other than perhaps the obvious. Uh, initially, were you surprised? Um, I want to get to you know what this means for Yarmo Kekalainen and what this means for Johnny Gaudreau, Patrick Laine, and Wierenski, and a couple of names as well. But when you first started to hear Babcock's name emerge around the team that you cover, what went through your mind? Well, it's, a stri- it's, it's interesting because... His name, he was one of the first guys they talked to, and his name has been attached to this opening for several weeks now. And yet, when when it started to come into focus that this is where they were going, it is a surprise to because we wrote a story I think three weeks ago, maybe a month ago, saying would they really do this? Mm-hmm. Would they really? I mean, they're talking to him, so why would you waste your time interviewing somebody if you didn't at least consider the possibility? Um, and yet, when you see it come into into focus like this, it, it is a little uh, surprising. Just because I think people wondered if he was going to coach again, if if he could coach again, how he would be received in uh, the dressing room in the NHL. Um, I think he mentioned, uh, at least to our Pierre LeBron, uh, and maybe to others, that that he considered himself retired as soon as a year ago. I'm not sure anybody believed him. Um, so yes, to see him surface, <laughs> I don't think it's a, a shock that uh, Columbus went in this sort of direction because you knew it was going to snap back uh, away from the players' coach into somebody that was a bit of a taskmaster. Uh, but to see them land on Babcock, yes, was was a bit of a surprise. If I were a betting man 48 hours ago, I would have put money on Patrick Waugh, but here it is, Mike Babcock. Mm. Uh, it, it'll be Mike Babcock, um, and that'll be announced in, in July. He still has a contract to yeah. uh, uh, to deal with with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, how has the reaction from the players been? I mean, uh, the, the information that I'm privy to is that, you know, there's some players, and, you know, not surprisingly so, uh, some players who aren't exactly thrilled about this. I'm sure there were some, some agents that made some uh, some quick phone calls when, when this news first broke. Um, how is this being received by the players? Well, the players are in the same spot as management here where they they have to act like it's not done until July 1st. So it, there's no official word. There's no official response. I think there's a, a reluctance by anyone to put their name on anything. And, uh, you know, I, I've not honestly heard from a single player that, that – that, uh, is outraged by this. I've heard from a couple that say, look, I just want to win. I just want, I, we can't go through what we did last year. I, they, they did talk to the room. Uh, we heard last, I think it was Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday, that players in the room were being asked about Babcock and in poking around in that uh, more deeply uh, back then, the players were, well, we've been asked about, a few coaches, nothing specific or intensely on Babcock. So I think they knew it was a possibility. I don't get the sense that anybody of note said, absolutely not, no way. If you do that, I want out of here. Or maybe they reconsider. Of course, they don't know that because they're not free to discuss it at this point. But my sense is from a lot of guys is that, that there is a... A desire. It, it's not unlike when Hitchcock was hired here and when Tortorella was hired here. You hear all of the stories, and sometimes the reputation doesn't quite match 
the reality. And I think Tortorella uh, swayed a lot of guys here uh, in the dressing room and beyond uh, to see what he's really like, that it's not a daily exercise and, and just, you know, lectures and screaming and controversy and, and clashing, that there's more to it. And I'm sure there are some Red Wings and some Leafs that did have good experiences playing for Babcock. Um, and we'll certainly try to track them down in the, in the days to follow. Uh, I, I am curious as well, Aaron. I mean, you know this team well. You know this organization well. You know the market well. Uh, when Babcock finally does speak, what do you think people want to hear from him? Do they want, uh, you know, a mea, mea culpa about Marner and, and, and Spezza and Franzen, etc.? Like, w- what do you think people are looking for? What do you think players are looking for, you know, to hear? And what are you looking to hear from, from Mike Babcock? Well, I, I, for me, a, like a, a really interesting question is, have you changed? Do you need to change? He has pushed back on the details of the Marner story. Um, I don't, I think he is, I'm not sure if, if he's gone to a full apology. He's acknowledged uh, the Francis situation that he didn't recognize it as clearly as he should have. Um, I'm not sure that he has an interest in reliving all of those things again. He'll be asked to, of course, uh, explaining the Madonna situation where you know, he ends up a game short yeah. of 1,500. Um, and all of these instances, it's clear the Blue Jackets believe Babcock's explanation of the stories. If, if they don't, if it's not an explanation of, well, this is what really happened, they accept his ownership of it or his apology of it uh or they're not here today uh, arm in arm with him looking forward to july 1st mm-hmm. i think the players will want to see a human side of him because again you you know reputations get built up uh and I, I go back to tortorella where people really did think that every day with him and reporters screaming at each other and him you know berating players and it just it, it it had that it always has that possibility with Don Torrell, but it wasn't that uh, very often at all. And most players uh, find it to have been very beneficial to have played for him. He has some players who played for him here who who really really love the man and the coach. Um, I I don't know Babcock to that extent. I've not experienced it. Most of the players in this room haven't. I don't think anybody in that room has played for him. Um, so it'll all be new to them. What they're going on now is their reputation. I think they want to see what is this guy really, is there a human side to this that we're not being presented right now? You know, when uh, when one coach gets fired, the uh, attention is still placed on the coach and the players. When a second coach gets fired... Uh, uh-huh. there's more attention on the players. When a third coach gets fired and a fourth coach gets hired, generally the attention starts to move away from the players and on to the general manager because you've sort of exhausted all the options why something isn't working. And you know, I was just talking to Elliot a second ago, and we are wondering if this is... You know, Jarmo Kekalainen's last coaching hire. Some listen, some managers get, you know, a handful of coaches that they that they hire before the attention turns to them and, and they ultimately walk the plank. Uh Kyle Dubas yeah. got one. He got to hire Sheldon Keefe and that was it. Um right. does this feel like Jarmo Kekalainen's last hire? I certainly see the possibility of it. He's been at it uh, ten years now. He's the fourth longest and your GM in the league, believe it or not. He'll be third as soon as David Poyle officially steps down. Um, it's been quite a run, uh, lengthwise, for him here. I asked him that very question when Brad yeah. Larson was fired. Um, didn't appreciate it, but I, I think the fact that he handled it that the way that he did is almost telling that he acknowledges the validity of it. it this is what it is. Um, and I, I think you can say that this hiring it does smack of desperation a little bit. I think their willingness, willingness, they did not, because he's not been cleared by the league to speak, but they did not rule out talking to Joel Quindle for the job. 
that I think goes even a step further. They have to get this right. What went on last year in Columbus, certainly injuries played a role. But this team was so far beneath its capabilities and so far beneath some individual performances. There are players in this room that need to be cranked up big time. Um, and it does eventually come to the general manager. What kind of team have you put together here? Um, it is a rebuild. This is the part of the rebuild I always say. That people love the start of the rebuild, the idea of the rebuild. Yeah, let's just rebuild it. It sounds so easy. This is the part of yeah. it that's really hard, where you're not sure where it's going. It looks so on track after year one. It looks so lost right now. It's like a train without a track. And uh, mm-hmm. Mike Babcock has started with getting it back on the rails here, finding the tracks and getting it back on it again. They feel like they've got a much a team that should be much more competitive than they were last year. So here, here's kind of how I look at this, Aaron, and I, I think probably you and I might might be in this in the same spirit here. If in Yarmo Kekalainen's mind, GM of the Columbus Blue Jackets, if it if in Yarmo's mind this is going to be his last hire or has the potential to be his last hire. I wonder if Yarmo here is thinking, if I'm going out, I'm going out with someone whose personality is closer to mine than a player's coach. I want someone who's going to come in here and not worry about sunshine and lollipops and pats on the back and and noogies in the parking lot after a win. I want someone who's going to come in here and to be honest, like try to whip this team in the shape and, yeah. and, is, and, is, and is not going to mince words about it and is going to come in and do the job. That's Yarmo's personality and that's Mike Babcock's personality. Do you think that's part of the thinking here? I do. I think this is how Yarmo is wired. Anyways, his answer to almost everything is work harder, get better. Um, he is. I, I don't know that he, he has the same sort of daring surface intensity that, that Babcock does, but he is a very intense guy. And the Yarmo behind the scenes is much different than what is portrayed publicly. Um, I also think this is a John Davidson hire. Um, this is a guy that when Bush comes to shove and this franchise has had its most success, it has leaned back on... Uh, tough disciplinarian coaches. They've made the playoffs six times in their history, five of it under Hitchcock or Tortorella. They've had eight winning seasons, six of them under Tortorella and Hitchcock. That's just what's worked here. Oddly enough, a lot of those sports fans in this town, it's a college football sports town, it's coaches. They freaking love coaches here. Coaches are bigger than players in college sports, and it's still, it still it feels like the most the most when this team has been its most successful, the loudest person with the organization has been the coach Hitchcock Tortorella, hmm. even way back to the the early days. Um, and so they're kind of drawn to these kinds of coaches, anyways. But I I, I think what if you watch this team play last year, I think Yarmo Kekalina reached his conclusion too. There's so much of this team that can be improved by cranking things up competitively with competitive spirit. Mm. You don't have to be a great, talented, skilled player to defend and defend hard. And that all went by the wayside these last couple of years. They became a soft, aimless team with, with very, very low standards. And that's what's really slipped since John Tortorella left. And this is their attempt to get back again. Controversial hire, uh, no doubt about it. Aaron, uh, always great having you aboard. Uh, great work on this file. Um, we will stand by to see what, when we finally get there, the uh, the first Mike Babcock press conference is all about. Aaron, thanks as always for stopping by. Really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Aaron Portsline from The Athletic covers the Columbus Blue Jackets. Uh, it won't be made official until July uh, when he's done with his Toronto Maple Leafs contract, but Mike Babcock will indeed be the next head coach of the Columbus Blue Jackets. Over to you, Patrick Laine and Johnny Gaudreau. Listen, I thought that Owen Tippett and John Tortorella wasn't going to work out. I looked at that combination and said, not a chance. 
So we'll see. Okay, hour two is coming up. Keith Jones stops by to kick it off. Also, you will hear from uh, Ryan Smith, who's the Utah Jazz owner of the NBA, trying to bring the NHL to Utah. And Eric Engels comments on the Cole Caulfield eight-year extension. Don't forget, game two tonight as well is the Panthers and the Vegas Golden Knights, 8 o'clock Eastern on CBC and Sportsnet. Jonesy next. Merrick Show continues. Keep it here. The best Blue Jays show out there, period. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, welcome back to the program. Welcome to Hour 2. Coming up, you're going to hear a little bit of our interview, Elliot and I, uh, the one that we did with Ryan Smith. Not the old, you know, Euler, King, Av, Ryan Smith, but Ryan Smith, Utah jazz owner who's attempting to bring the NHL to Salt Lake City. Also, Eric Engels comments on the new Cole Caulfield deal. It is a eight-year extension, AAV of $7.85 million. That's still to come. Uh, on today's program. In the meantime, we welcome aboard once again, for the first time I can say welcome aboard, the president of hockey operations for the Philadelphia Flyers, but he is also still from the NHL on TNT. He is the multi-talented and he juggles and uh, he's spinning plates and he's doing everything. He's Keith Jones and he joins me now. Keith, how are you today? Thanks so much for doing this. I'm doing great, Jeff, and it's always great to catch up with you, pal. Well, listen, uh, I, I feel same, and uh, I haven't said this uh, publicly to you. It's it's been uh, it's been just been like that these days. But uh, congratulations, uh, a belated congratulations on the president of hockey operations gig. And but before we get to talking about anything about the final uh, or anything about the, the the Flyers president of hockey operations job, um, I'm really curious because you know you're you're one of the people whose opinions I really value on issues in hockey. So I, I want to get your thoughts on uh, on the dynamic between a player and a coach and where on the surface level you might look at it and say, uh-oh, I don't think this is going to work. Now, I just talked to Aaron Portsline a second ago from The Athletic and we are talking about the Babcock hire and you know, I think we all wonder, you know, who's this going to be good for, who's this going to be bad for? And then I catch myself, and I was saying this to Elliot earlier, Jonesy, I, I caught myself and I... By the end of the season, I said I was really wrong about one dynamic that I thought was going to be awful, and it turned out really good. And it's from your team. It's from the Philadelphia Flyers. I honestly thought the combination of Owen Tippett and John Tortorella was going to be terrible, and I couldn't have been more wrong. Um, Do you have experiences maybe from your past or just the thought on what may seem to be a bad combination can actually turn out to be a great one in sports? You know, I I can say from a personal level, I played for some coaches early on in my career that we bumped heads. I can tell you from experience, Mm -hmm. if I played for the same type of coach later on in my career when I was a more mature player, I would have been a much more effective player for him. Uh, Jim Schoenfeld comes to mind, and, and without Shoney and how hard he pushed me and challenged me, I don't know that I would have become a player that would have had the opportunities to play on the same line as Leclerc and Lindros or Sackick and Deadmarsh or Forsberg and Kaminsky. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a young player, I just didn't get it, and he really helped me get on track without me really even recognizing that until I became much older and he's the first guy that when I see him I give a big hug because that's the type of influence Mm. that he had on me Uh, sometimes things from the outside don't look like they work but sometimes it's all about where that player is at as far as his development and where Mm. his maturity level is at so I I think it was a perfect fit for Owen Tippett to kind of come in and get charged up to play for a coach like John Tortorella and that combination was one of the you know few positives that the Flyers had last season he, he was a big part of that he, he, he sure was and uh, I knew you'd have a great answer for that question and that's why I, I, I threw it out there um, game one Stanley Cup final before we drill down on a couple of things here I, I just thought the game itself was awesome 
You know, right from the uh, the Aiden Hill save, which reminded us about the Holtby save on Alex Tuck and uh, that Vegas Washington Stanley Cup final, right, right to the to the to the final buzzer. I just I just thought that was a great hockey game. We have our fingers crossed for Game Two here tonight. If we can get another great one uh, like we just saw on Saturday, do you have a, a wide brush thought on what we saw at T-Mobile Arena on Saturday night? I thought the first period was outstanding from both teams. I thought they looked very equal to one another, which I was a little bit surprised about, but probably shouldn't have been because the adrenaline was there for Florida. And I I thought that they kind of fought through the rust and energy level was high and excitement was high. But then I thought the layoff hurt them in the second period and probably parts of the third. I, I thought Vegas was the better team from Really, the beginning of the second period, they looked stronger. Uh, they looked like they, at times, could carry the play. And they looked like a team that's going to be really difficult for Florida as this series moves along. All that being said, I think Florida should be a lot better team throughout the entire game tonight. And that's going to be mm-hmm. the challenge for Vegas, is not just to play as well as they did in game one, but to elevate even more. Uh, we'll see where that ends up. But to me, Vegas seems like they're a little bit better. And Florida's got to make sure that mm-hmm. they, you know, up their game throughout and play an entire 60 or more to find a way to get this series even. What, what, was there one thing about Vegas that stood out to you? I mean, I, I come away from that game again gushing about that that Vegas blue line, and they're all, you know, they're all they're all oak trees. These are all large men on on the blue line, and they're mobile. And I think about. You know, Tom Watt, <laughs> I thought about this on Saturday. Tom Watt used to have a saying about what he wanted from his blue line or what he wanted his blue line to, to resemble. And, and Tom Watt's great line was, I want my blue line to be uh, hostile, mobile, virile, dancing bears. That's what I want my blue line to be. And I, I look at the Vegas Golden Knights, and these are large men who can move their feet and can really play and can punish you if they need to and can make plays. And that Shea Theodore goal was a thing of beauty, the way he danced the line. And that, that was my big takeaway from, from Saturday, just how, how good that Vegas blue line is. What were some of your takeaways from, the, uh, from game one? Yeah, as a combination, they really fulfill all of the things that you mentioned that Tom Watt liked in his in his defense. They're different, <laughs> some of them, Theodore being the one that's the most creative offensively and can really make things yes. happen uh, once he enters the offensive zone. The other guys like McNabb and Martinez have won before uh, because of the way that they yep. play. Their you know, attention to detail, their shot-blocking ability, their blocking out ability and not allowing players to get in tight around their goaltender certainly helped. Uh, Petrangelo is the key. I mean, he is the guy. He is their number one. He does it all. Uh, He's their most important player on that team as far as that core of six on the back end. Uh, You know, what he did for St. Louis and helping them win the Stanley Cup can never be forgotten. Uh, He's doing the same thing for Vegas now. And then the home-growing talents, you know, the the White Clouds and the Hags doing their part. They're all big and they make it difficult. They are not easy to play against. And what I really found, Jeff, is Florida really wanted to throw their weight around, and it worked okay in period number one, but it takes a lot of energy to play that style throughout an entire game against guys that have size mm-hmm. that you're going to bounce off of, you're going to get hit by, like Barbashev, who had that reverse hit on Maher, so they yep. threw that body check into him. Into him. Those are the things that are going to be a challenge for Florida. And I thought Matthew Kachuk really ran around too much. He doesn't need to play that way against Vegas. He's not going to dent anybody on their team with a big hit. He's just got to get hits, win the puck battles, and do what he's done throughout the playoffs, score you know, those prime opportunity goals that uh, come in and around the crease area and not worry about trying to run guys over uh, let me uh, let me get your thoughts on Nick Hague. You just you just mentioned him uh, a second ago, and I can recall having a conversation with James Richmond, who's the uh, the head coach of the Mississauga Steelheads of the OHL. And uh, this is this is when Hague was playing. I think it was his first year in the OHL, 
And JR said to me, you know, I, I remember being at a Four Nations, and this is before John Klingberg had come to the NHL. He said, there was this guy playing for Sweden, John Klingberg, who consistently would throw pucks at the net high. And we all know that it's dangerous, but he would get it through. And that was his, his key to success and his key to scoring. And he's, he's done it in the NHL ever since as well. And he said, I haven't ever felt comfortable with a defenseman doing that until this kid, Nick Haig. you got to come watch him play because just like I saw John Klingberg at the Four Nations, this kid can do the same thing, walk the line, shoot it high, and, and chances are it's going to find the back of the net. So that's the Nick Haig that I watched in the OHL. I watched the Nick Haig now um, in the in the NHL with the Vegas Golden Knights, and maybe it's just the nature of the playoffs. But you know, pick your team and pick your player. What is it about Nick Haig that seems to just get under everybody's skin? Guys run around looking for Haig, trying to get a lick on him, trying to get a a piece of him. We saw it in the Dallas series. We saw it in Game One uh, with the Florida Panthers. Is there anything? Is there anything you've noticed about Nick Haig? Because it seems as if he's driving everybody into a into a fit here. Yeah, you know it's a it's a rare ability to do frustrating things against the, your opponent without taking penalties for the most part, and yes. not moving your lips. I mean, he doesn't say much. He just defends. He's in the yeah. way. He's a pain, you know. And that's a real compliment for to him and the way that he defends in today's game. It's it's not easy to be a defensive defenseman at times and not take the odd penalty. And I think he's done a really good job in that regard. I think players are just unhappy going against him because he does it so well. And I, I was at ice level, and I watched it. I was, like, kind of curious mm-hmm. about it myself, and I was looking to see, is he is he saying something? Is, he, is there something that he's doing to, to irritate them that really stands out to me? And there really wasn't. Um, so it's it's a curious case to me, and I'm going to pay attention to it as this series moves along because I think he's a really important guy. John Stevens should be given a lot of credit, the guy that's running the blue line for I agree uh, for for Las yeah. Vegas. He is uh, he's outstanding. You know, I'm right beside him, Jeff, and I'm always I know John well, and I'm trying to like even just make eye contact once because I hadn't have a chance to even talk to him since the series started. He never once even acknowledge that I was there. All he was concerned about <laughs> was the matchup on the back. Who was going out on the ice the entire time? And I looked over probably four yeah. or five times during the game, and not once was there anything. That's how focused he was. And I thought to myself, this is a guy that gets it. He's won cups before in a similar yeah. role with, the, with L.A. with two defensemen that we mentioned before that played for him. Uh, they, they've got a lot yep. going on here, and they really have done an outstanding job of you know, turning over every stone to make sure that they're in a place to try to win this thing this year. Just a thorough pro. You know, I, I am curious about, I, I remember asking, um, I remember asking Glenn Healy this question once uh, because Heels worked uh, between the benches at, at ice level as well. And I said, you know, which of all the Stanley Cup finals that you've worked, which, which had the sort of nastiest tone from bench to bench? Like, which were the ones where you really had to keep the finger on the mute button? He said, hands down, without a doubt, nothing compares to 2010 Philadelphia-Chicago. He said, every time I took my finger off the mute button, it was an adventure uh, when I had to go on. It was nasty between the, between the two benches. I know it's only one game, but how is it between these two teams already? You know, for Florida, that's part of the tactics that they use, and I thought they used it really well against Carolina. They've got some guys that are pretty funny down there, like Lomberg and Nick Cousins, who continue to move their lips. Radko Gudas irritates guys just by his style of play. Uh, I thought they did a lot of that, and it kind of benefited them against the Carolina team that was all business, right? Vegas is all business. Mm. They're, They're... better at ignoring it and then letting their play speak for itself so i would say from game one it was a one-way conversation not a lot was coming back towards the florida side of things and i think vegas kind of looks at it like we're we're the big brother here we've been here before and we're going to play our game and go about our business and not worry about the stuff that doesn't happen between you know between play um, that was that was an interesting sidebar to what I was witnessing down there. 
Interesting. Uh, one more question about the series, and then one Flyers question. We'll let you get on with uh, with with your day here, Jonesy. Um, what do you expect tonight in Game Two? Like, I, I think that we're probably going to see a little bit more of a focused Florida Panthers squad, and probably to your previous point, a more focused Matthew Kachuk. But what are you looking for tonight? Uh, I'm looking for Florida not to not run around as much as they did in Game One. You know, the I think that's something that Florida can really benefit from. Uh, their game is to, you know, chip and charge and make plays down low and use that line of Bennett and Kachuk and Cousins to really force Vegas to have to defend. The neutral zone was a problem for Florida. Uh, Jack Eichel, every time he got the puck, seemed to enter the offensive zone with possession. Uh, made a number of re- yeah. really outstanding plays throughout. They're going to have to be really aware of him. I thought Eichel was, you know, the best player on the ice and didn't necessarily light it up with points. He really drove play. And that that's going to be an issue mm-hmm. for Florida. Barkov's going to have to do an outstanding job against him. And Barkov's going to have to score in this series, which is going to be a really difficult challenge. So I would expect Vegas to play the same way. I, I expect Eichel to be a problem, but I would – think that Florida would be a more, little more tactful in the way they go about things and play a really smart, intelligent game and try to steal one here tonight. Uh, we're tuned in for this one. Uh, one quick thought on the Philadelphia Flyers. Um, put on the, the president of Hockey Ops hat on this one. Uh, Daniel Briere, general manager, announcing uh, on Friday, or it might have been Thursday, all the days run together for me now, uh, promotions for Alan McCauley, uh, Riley Armstrong, and Nick Schultz. I'll get the bump in the Flyers organization. Uh, what should we know about them, Jonesy, and their new positions? Well, they're all very good at what they do. Uh, They are, you know, coming into a job that is extremely important to us. Where we're at in our evolution, we are rebuilding. And we're going to rely heavily on player development and our drafting. And we need to have the right people in place in order to make sure that we do all we can to make sure that our players don't flatline and progress and become the players that we anticipate them to be. Uh, there is more to come. We're not done yet, but we want to make sure that our players are well taken care of uh, and that in the end they take care of us, that they love playing for us, and they love the people that work for us. So that's kind of where that starts. And we are in the business of making the entire Flyers organization better and in doing that, we think it's going to help our hockey team, our product on the ice. So more hires on the horizon. Any truth to the rumor that uh, you're hiring Elliot Friedman as your assistant? Confirm or deny, Jonesy? Uh, I would love to, Jeff, but he's making too much money with you and your 32 thoughts <laughs> may turn to 33 at some time. <laughs> and you're going to need him. We'll see about that, yeah. That's a good point. Could he take? Could he? Could he handle the pay cuts? Could he handle the pay cuts? Uh, you're the best, Jonesy. Uh, once again, a belated congratulations on the on the position with the Flyers, and uh, we'll always be tuned in uh, to watch the NHL on TNT. Certainly, when you're involved. Thanks as always. Enjoy Game Two tonight, pal. Yeah, much appreciated, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Take care, buddy. There he is, Keith Jones, Flyers president of hockey operations. Um, still, uh, you know, fulfilling the contract for the year with uh, the NHL on TNT. He is ringside. He is between the benches. And that is a really interesting spot to be in. You know, talk to anyone who's done that, whether it's, you know, I mentioned Glenn Healy, Pierre Maguire was one of the people that really revolutionized uh, that spot. We've seen, you know, Leah Hextall uh, down there before as well, Louis DeBrusque. Uh, we think of other people that have, have, have worked that. It is a, um, if you're not used to it, it can be a real eye-opening experience. I always thought it would be, you know, interesting to sell a seat or maybe two seats there to fans just so they can get an ear, an earful of what is said between the benches. Um, the mute button is certainly, uh, certainly necessary uh, for a lot of people. Others just want that raw and want to know what the players are saying and have it uncut and raw and put it on a password-protected site and we'll listen to it and watch it all day long. But uh, remember Heels telling me that Flyers-Chicago series was like no other whether it was Christopher Stieg 
whether it was Patrick Kane, who had a real salty tongue too, to say nothing of you know various members of the uh, of the Philadelphia Flyers. Uh, there was a big, tall defenseman from Dryden, Ontario, played for uh, Stratford, played for the Peterborough Peets, drafted by Hartford. Oh, what was his name again? Oh, yeah, Chris Pronger. Uh, who wasn't shy, and there were a lot of players on that Philadelphia Flyers squad that uh, that weren't shy about not letting it fly as well. Anyhow, uh, Eric Engels coming up at the bottom of the hour to talk about the Cole Caulfield extension. It is eight years. It is $7.85 million. Habs fans rejoice. Uh, in the meantime, let's bring Matt Marchese aboard, our, our producer and full-time fill-in host uh, who took over the uh, the reins on Friday uh, when I was in Vegas. Um, Matty, uh, describe what we're going to do here because this is kind of a collage before we get to hear from Ryan Smith, uh, owner of the Utah Jazz, the man who's trying to bring NHL hockey to that state. So uh, the plan is that we're going to air um, – Bill Daly had some comments just about expansion, and then he mentioned, you know, uh, somebody asked him about uh, Salt Lake. And then from there, we're going to dovetail to uh, Gary Bettman's conversation with Ron McClain. And then after that, we're going to hear from Ryan okay. Smith when he talks to you and Elliot. So, Lance, if we could play the Bill Daly here. What I'd say is I, I think right. we've been consistent in saying, like, that expansion's not on the top of our priority list. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the good news is that there are a lot of people who are interested in owning NHL franchises in a lot of different markets. Uh, I certainly don't think uh, player pool or supply uh, is a concern for us or, or a dilution of, of the product. Uh, I think there's a lot of good hockey players due to the efforts of everybody in terms of developing hockey players. Uh, so obviously what our owners look at when they look at expansion is, uh, does adding a club uh, add to the value, the overall value of the league? Um, that is their equation, and that's you know that's the equation we'll apply going forward. Gary and Bill, uh, either one of you, um, there seems to be some interest in, from Salt Lake City on potentially getting a team. Can you confirm that that interest has been directly communicated to you guys? You can answer that. Uh, we've we've certainly talked to Ryan Smith, and and he uh, he has indicated he. Uh, has an interest in bringing the NHL to Salt Lake City. Okay, so um, we knew that already. Um, that's been reported by Elliot, and then we sat down and, and talked to Ryan Smith. Uh, one more thing real quick here. This is, you know, to, to Maddie's point a second ago, this was from Saturday's intermission. This is Ron McLean in conversation with NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman where he asks the Salt Lake City question. Here you go. Ryan Smith, Elliot Friedman, uh, Jeff Merrick did a great interview with him. He's the owner of the Utah Jazz, and he's so keen to have the team in Salt Lake, and they're the fastest-growing state in city. Go on. But, but Ryan is a member of the NBA, and he respects process. He respects how leagues do business. He understands it, and we're, we're delighted that he and a number of other people in other places are expressing interest in our franchises, which have never been stronger and have never been more valuable. Would you see him maybe then more as an expansion opportunity? Because you touched on a little bit of expansion today. I, I, I mean, we're getting the interest. We're not in an expansion mode. Uh, we like where we are right now on 32, but I, I always listen. Okay, so that is NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman on uh, on Ryan Smith, the uh, Utah Jazz owner. Um, also, uh, he's one of the co-owners with Josh Blitzer of the uh, MLS team in Salt Lake City. Josh Blitzer, of course, uh, one of the owners of the New Jersey Devils. And that is one of the things that he touched on when Elliot and I sat down with him last week uh, for extended conversation. Um, you can hear the full podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Um, thought we'd play a little bit of this Ryan Smith interview from last week, just considering, you know, Salt Lake City was on the top of people's minds when it came to asking either Bill Daly or Gary Bettman about expansion slash relocation. And yes, of course, we all have eyeballs on what's happening with the Arizona Coyotes right now. So uh, just to give you a little bit of a taste of what Ryan Smith is all about, and just as an aside, even though, you know, Gary Bettman talked about process and how we do business, and normally they, I shouldn't say this, historically the NHL doesn't like it to be noisy, doesn't like it to be loud, doesn't like people to jump off the pages. Uh, Although I very much do believe that the NHL took great delight in how Ryan Reynolds behaved around the Ottawa sale before his group pulled out and liked the attention and notoriety he was bringing to the Ottawa market. Just like I would suspect that the NHL kind of likes the fact that Ryan Smith is interested 
in being part of the NHL. He is very much considered a new age owner, um, has a really big, gregarious personality, very passionate about, as you'll hear in the, the, the this interview, uh, passionate about sports, passionate about his state, his marriage, his faith, all these things that he talks about uh, in the long form of the interview. And I kind of think that, you know, considering he's a hot owner of today, that the NHL likes, have, likes having someone like Ryan Smith interested in their league. So to get a sense of what this guy is all about, here is Ryan Smith, Utah Jazz owner on bringing the NHL to Utah. Enjoy. You are the owner, as you mentioned, of the Utah Jazz and also Real Salt Lake of MLS. There you have an NHL connection. David Blitzer is a co-owner, and he's a co-owner of the New Jersey Devils. We have heard a lot about your interest. Tell us about your interest in the NHL. Yeah, so first, Blitz is a, a complete gym. Like, I love Blitz, and he's he's a great partner, and um, we're having a lot of fun. He owns a lot of soccer teams and is a part of it. But he also, if he, if he tells you he has one night, it's going to be at the Devils, right? Like, he, <laughs> he says that. That's like his favorite thing. <laughs> Look, and I'm fortunate enough to cross paths with a lot of folks in the NHL, whether it's John Cooper or Gretz or, mm-hmm. you know, Tom Dundon. You know, these are folks that I know. Most of it's through golf. And uh, if I look at in our market, like I think Utah and Salt Lake City, I mean, we're the fastest growing state with the number one economy in the country, right, in the U.S. And we have been mm-hmm. well, one of the fastest growing states for a long time and the growth in our our state is on really unprecedented Mm -hmm. and so this isn't the salt lake that your utah sports that maybe you saw in the last dance of basketball or something like that (laughs) like the whole the whole world's changed and with that it's really shined a lot of light on 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 who we are and like what we can become and i think if you look at what we offer is is a state you've got that growth and you also have like what I would call the winter sports capital of the world. The Olympics are coming back here. I mean, 7 million people are coming in every year for, for winter sports. Almost every single winter sports is headquartered right here within 20 minutes of Salt Lake City, one way or another. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at the success we've had and how much people like to go out, you know, it's a very family focused environment where people love to go to games like we we've got 240 straight sellouts of the utah jazz and during that time there's a lot of different makeups of teams like last year was not our best year because we kind of went through a rebuilding and it didn't matter like the place was full Hmm. and so if you look at that and you say okay i think hockey is really kind of mesmerizing a lot of people right now and i think the growth of it i also think it's it's on the back of a a growth of people wanting in-person experiences. Mm-hmm. We're seeing that with retail and the way people shop. We're seeing that with different things people buy and the pickup of travel and experiences on what this new generation wants. So you've kind of got this perfect setup for hockey. We're also the youngest demographic in the United States. And I think from our standpoint with our group, we kind of had to ask the question, are, are we into basketball? Are we actually coming into sports? And can we actually build out a broader business? And basketball was the first, I, mean, I thought it was going to be soccer, but actually it was basketball was the first part of what we call Smith Entertainment Group, SEG. And mm-hmm. we just see hockey fitting in perfectly. We think the market's going to be as receptive as what you've seen in Seattle or Las Vegas. And we also think we can be phenomenal partners with the NHL. I mean, we're one of the youngest groups in the NBA for sure. We think about it differently. We just hosted the all-star game and it was incredible. Mm -hmm. And we think Utah is ripe for it. So our fan base has been receptive. And I actually believe that what we could do with the sport especially in the winter outdoor, Hmm. really turning it into something actually really excites me. You know, we had such an incredible winter and I would love to say, Hey, how do we activate the community a little bit more? Cause I, I mean, as a kid, I used to play roller hockey all the time, Mm -hmm. like all the time. Like, you know, there was never a sport that I got more injured at, but uh, it was <laughs> like, it was one of our favorite things to do. And so there's like these cultures here, but no one's ever said, Hey, look, we have this team and we're going to set up 
all the other functions around and really build this out. Like, what are you, what are you talking about there, Ryan? Like, what, I'm very curious about this. What are you talking about there? The Utah Jazz and the Miller family who owned it before, and we have the largest youth and oldest, I think, ongoing. We have 60,000 kids that play junior jazz basketball. And, you know, Utah, we're not struggling on the kid front. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> so if you actually look at the education process, that how cool would it be if these kids grew up with the opportunity to jump in and hockey was an option, mm-hmm. right? First arena, you mentioned the seating isn't perfect now. Do you see the day when the Olympics come that there will be a new rink for the Jazz and the as-yet-unnamed hockey team? Oh, for sure. Like, if we're rolling in those two together, that's no question. And whether that's in the existing spot or a new spot, I think that's part of it. But the good news is, is I think some of the land struggles that you see in other places, I think we're a little more set up for that for whatever reason mm-hmm. and it doesn't mean there's a whole bunch of empty land mm-hmm. it's just more of the structure of our city and, and state you're smart enough to know what i'm trying here but existing team relocated or expansion team is that a question <laughs> yes <laughs> yes it is um look i mean with with the existing team relocation i think my message has been consistent to gary and bill is like look we're we're a partner we're a willing partner we're here we're ready like we're here to help however we can be helpful and whether you should come out and say that or not like i am who i am like Mm. we're here we're ready we're ready to help however we can if there's a part of the process that they need and we can be helpful, ready to go. We've already made that decision that we're, we're here to help. Wow. But it's hard to not look at Seattle and Vegas and go, what an incredible job mm-hmm. that any league's done on expansion and like the action. And I mean, holy cow, like that's a playbook to how to do it. What's the team name? The Utah what? Oh, geez. Oh, my word. I can't give away all my secrets. Um, I could run through social media and show you about 7,000 of them. <laughs> Have you trademarked any of those suggestions? That's probably the better question. Uh, yeah. yeah, but there's there's some cool ones, I'll tell you that. Like, I think the Kraken have done a phenomenal job and like, the way they branded it. I mean, you see their stuff everywhere and the color scheme. And mm-hmm. boy, it would be fun. Okay, we're not getting that answer, Jeff. That one we're not getting out of here. Nice try. Let's see if I go on this fishing trip, if I can pull one into the boat here. What can you share about your dinner with Gary Bettman, NHL commissioner? Yes. Look, I mean, I met with Gary a bunch, and I had met with Adam a bunch. I'd worked with Adam for a while on the tech side, so I know everyone else kind of freaks out about it, but it's a big part of the decision process when you come into this is understanding who you're working with and, and other, other folks as well as just not Gary, but Bill, like, and, and other folks that you'd be sitting around the table with. And I've, I've been fortunate enough to know Tom and to know Ted Leonsis and Blitz, obviously. And I think that's equally as important as well as getting to know, say, Hey, who, who are your partners with in a way? And so Gary, um, we've had great discussions. I mean, I, I think, as I said, I think it's, 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 it's a little obvious to a lot of people, right? I mean, in, in the NHL is, I think, 25 teams in the, in the U.S. And so there there are markets like Salt Lake who it's sitting there. It's a hub. It's, you know, you can jump on the plane and head right to London or Amsterdam or mm-hmm. Asia. Like, you can get everywhere. It's not a small market. It's a brand a little bit of a small market, mostly because of just how the capital city works. But if you actually think about it, people come to Salt Lake to – to buy a house and, and spread out a little. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the at the growth and where we are, like especially when it comes to like the league and the NBA, we're, we're definitely creeping into top 10 in almost every category. And so there's a different set. It's m- more mid and hopefully upper market when it comes to that. 
Okay, that's Ryan Smith. He's the owner of the uh, Utah Jazz and along with David Blitzer, uh, owner of the Salt Lake team in MLS, trying to bring an NHL squad to Salt Lake, Salt Lake City. And it may actually be a lot closer than you or I or anybody outside of, you know, people who make these decisions, namely the commissioner and the board of governors, think. And by the way, sneaky good line and sneaky candidate for line of the year so far in any interview that Elliot and I have done, Ryan Smith saying, we're not struggling on the kid front here in Utah. That was really well done, Ryan. So we'll see where this one goes. Um, But we've heard both uh, Bill Daly and now Gary Bettman comments on Ryan Smith and the interest in the NHL in Utah. We'll see where this one heads. Meanwhile, uh, in Canada, the news of the day, Cole Caulfield signing a contract extension with the Habs. $7.85 million is the AAV. Eric Engels from Sportsnet.ca checks in on everything Hab. In moments, Merrick's show continues across the Sportsnet radio network, simulcast on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet Now. Back in a moment. Diving deep into the biggest stories in Toronto sports and the NFL, the J.D. Bunkus podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. If, by the way, and I've got a couple of texts about it and a few DMs as well and a couple of tweets. Uh, if you want to hear that full Ryan Smith interview, that is available on the uh, 32 Thoughts podcast. One of the pods we released last week. I think we released that one on the Thursday morning. Anyhow, uh, it's available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, Ryan was incredibly generous with me and Elliot, gave us about an hour of his time, and it's a pretty wide-ranging interview. It starts off as a, a get to know you. Uh, who is Ryan Smith, and then we dovetail right into the you know his desire to bring uh, an NHL team to Utah, and those whispers are getting louder and louder and louder. Although Atlanta's pretty hot right now too. Yes, Atlanta. Maybe a third time. Maybe third time's a charm. We shall see. Uh, in the meantime, a uh, charming bit of business by CAA and the Montreal Canadiens with the Cole Caulfield contract. It is an eight-year contract extension at a number that's making Montreal Canadiens fans happy. Here for comment from Sportsnet.ca is Eric Engels, who covers the Montreal Canadiens. Eric, how are you today? I'm doing great, Jeff. How are you? Uh, I'm good. Your your uh, your wide brush thoughts on on the on the Cole Caulfield extension. Um, I was talking to Elliot at the beginning of the uh, the program, and he mentioned you know looking for a term that Montreal was interested in. You know, if we're going to do this, we're going to we're going to lock this young man up for as long as we can. Uh, it is max term. It is seven point eight five million dollars. To which Eric Engels says, "What?" I was I was a little bit surprised, to be honest with you, that they were able to get him at a number that's lower than Suzuki's, which was always their objective if they were going to go long-term with him, right? That was the major kind of carrot yep. dangling for Ted Hughes and Jeff Gordon, if they could get that number done, uh, if they were willing to give eight years after 123 games of experience for this player. Um, for Cole, it's the type of security as a 22-year-old that you would dream of having, right? You know, like... He's 123 games in, like I said. He's a 15th overall pick with great potential. Uh, Is he 100% proven? No. Has he put up 48 goals in his last 83 games? Yes. You know, it's not as if the Canadians don't know he's a goal scorer and is going to continue to be one. That's his pedigree. It's what he's done at every level at an astounding uh, ability, uh, you know, breaking Austin Matthews' scoring record with the National Development Program in the U.S. and coming to Montreal and, despite a little bit of struggle under Dominic Ducharme coming alive under Martin St. Louis, uh, the numbers are justified. The contract is justified and it has the potential Mm -hmm. to be an unbelievable bargain. When you consider where the salary cap is going to be going as early as next year and potentially over the next four or five years where you get in halfway through that deal and you're paying for Cole Caulfield and Nick Suzuki in their primes and you could be looking at them making somewhere around 6% uh, in the value of the salary cap and getting paid kind of like second liners when I think we all know that they're going to be yeah. top line players if they're not already. So I, I look at this one and like you, I say, wow, that's a, that, that's a really nice number for, for eight years. And again, to your point, like it's, he hasn't played in the, hasn't played a lot of games in the NHL, but I, I think we know what he is. 
Um, and it underscores one thing for me, and that is goals are expensive. And I know it is getting easier to score goals the more we, you know, learn about, you know, pre-shot movement, etc. And now it's up to the goalies to, to make their adjustments, and we'll, we'll see where that heads next. Um, but I look at this and I say, look, goals are expensive. Caulfield can score. And provided that this goal scorer, not unlike someone like Alex Debrinkit, is in the right environment with the right coach, and I look at Debrinket right now and I say, I'm not sure this is the right fit at all for, for Debrinket. Like the style of play that Ottawa plays, it really doesn't serve Debrinket well. I look at Caulfield under Martin Saint-Louis and, and say this is kind of hand to glove. And I would imagine if you're the Montreal Canadiens, now it's incumbent upon you to make sure that whatever happens behind the bench, and so far Marty Saint-Louis looks like a good one for Cole Caulfield, everything or a lot of things at least need to be done to maximize the value on this contract, i.e. play a style of game so we can get our money's worth and more out of someone like Cole Caulfield. Yeah, it's a really good point. And, you know, I don't think in this whole estimation by Hughes and Gordon, there was any guesswork on that part of it, right? Like, you know, talk about hand to glove with Marty St. Louis and Cole Caulfield. The the numbers are there to support that. Uh, The style of play is there to support that. And let's not underestimate the fact that not only do Nick Suzuki and Cole Caulfield want to play together, the Canadians want them playing together, right? You know, it's that's kind of how you're going to maximize the potential of both players. And I think there is potential for Cole Caulfield to be much more than just a goal scorer. He is an underrated playmaker and uh, he has an ability away from the puck that is growing. Um, One of the things I saw him do this year that was really impressive was be the guy as a second four checker uh, stealing pucks, you know, and, and we talk about defense and defensive systems and playing defense in your own zone. Um, you know, the best defense most of the time is playing up the ice and getting the puck back as soon as you lose it. And he has an ability to do that. Yeah. And he's a smaller guy. He's, he's five, seven, you know, he's, I don't know what the weight is exactly. I'll have to check. Uh, you know, he plays a lot bigger than his size. He is not afraid of going in the corners. He is not afraid of hitting guys that are a lot bigger than he is, which is most guys in the national hockey league. And I, I just think you look at all those factors and I don't see a lot of risk in the deal for the Canadians. Um, even though I, I, I can't really pinpoint someone other than Cole Caulfield who might eclipse Nick Suzuki's salary, considering how close this came without going over, there's your prices right reference, um, does this indicate to you that for Ken Hughes and the Montreal Canadiens, the Suzuki deal right now is the ceiling? Yeah, you know, it's the, the richest deal that a Montreal Canadiens forward has ever signed. And now Cole comes in at number two and the highest paid winger uh, in Montreal Canadiens history. But, you know, it's a big coup for management to be able to set that bar, especially in a market like Montreal. Like, let's face it, this team has had a hard time in free agency because of all the other factors Canadian teams face in free agency. Uh, and also in terms of where they've been uh, since winning the Cup in 1993 in terms of their standing in the league. Uh, For Cole to set the anchor down, you know, obviously he was a restricted free agent, couldn't sign with anybody else until July 1st came around, potentially field offer sheets if that was a a road that they could go down. Um, Him and Suzuki anchored down, Suzuki for seven more years, Cole for eight, you know, sends a message across the league. And I think when you have somebody like Marty St. Louis there, um, you know, the, t- the possibility has become a lot more open uh, to get some players interested in playing in this market. And you see the direction the team is going in. So, yeah, it was really important for the Canadians if they were going to give Cole that eight-year deal, that that number did not go in and above the captain's number. And um, there's a lot of teams that have that type of structure or aim for that type of structure where they set the bar with one specific player um, you know, I think of Nashville and the really, mm. you know, what they did with Yossi and then, you know, Forsberg. It's hard to achieve. It's hard to achieve because, as you know, Jeff, the, the salary cap when Nick Suzuki signed two years ago was fixed and going to be fixed for the foreseeable future. Uh, Cole Caulfield was in a situation yeah. where they were looking at it and it's going to grow and spike in a summer from now and then exponentially grow. And I, I think of like Jason Robertson with the Stars and what happened there, represented by Paprisson as well. You know, it didn't seem like the Caulfield camp went down that road. They had an interest in in being a Montreal Canadian long-term, and that's to the benefit of Kent Hughes and Jeff Gordon. 
Um, uh, other issues around Montreal. And I think we all wonder about Matt Faye Mitchkoff and, and where he ends up. And I look at the Montreal Canadiens and I say they are in a really interesting position in the draft. Uh, Montreal will select fifth overall uh, right after the San Jose Sharks. Um, and, you know, the, the one wild card through all of this is, and he probably has, you know, you know uh, top two skill in this draft, you know, might be the only one skill-wise that would rival Connor Bedard, Matvey Mitchkov, and, you know, the, the problem is the contract in Russia, and does he ever come over? Uh, how much are the, the whispers going around Montreal about what they do at five, and would they consider drafting Matvey Mitchkov as a long-term project? I mean, it's a great question, and, like, I can't sit here and lie to you and tell you I have the answer, because, honestly, go back a year when they were choosing between you know, Shane Wright and Logan Cooley and Uri Slavkovsky. I don't think anybody knew until we were about an hour away from draft time and the buzz started to go that they were going to pick Slavkovsky. Um, as far as Mishkov is concerned, you know, any team in that position is going to have a real decision on their hands. And I think it has a lot less to do with the fact that he's under contract and only eligible to really come in three years from now because I don't, I don't think there's all that much concern, even if there is a little bit of it. I think it's more to do with the fact that a lot of teams haven't had the opportunity to see him in person, to talk to him, to get to know him. And, you know, I know that there's Canadians fans out there that are clamoring. Like, if this guy's available, please take him. He's the most talented guy. <laughs> it is not yep. purely about talent. This is not how NHL teams evaluate who the best prospect is to draft. It is about the development of the player and who they become three years down the line. Um, you can make a very large balance sheet, Jeff, on what the benefits are and what the negatives are. The fact that he won't be developed by the Canadians for three years after they draft him is is a negative. The fact that he'd be coming over in three years from now on an entry-level deal is a major positive considering his own level. I can't tell you for sure what they're going to do, but I would suggest that with Nick Bobrov as you know co-director of scouting, a guy with a Russian passport and ties deep within that country, they'll have done their homework on what the complete picture is and not just what the talents of the player is. And it is up against the backdrop of who the other players are, how they fit with the Canadians, what their talent level is, and what their ability is to be the best contributor three years down the line, two, three years down the line, or potentially sooner or even later. So... I don't know. It's going to be a really controversial decision one way or the other if he is available at five, and we'll see how the Canadians handle it. Well, that's just it. Whether you pick him or not, it's going to be a story uh, around Montreal. Either they they, they, they take uh, Mitchkoff, and it's a huge story for the obvious reasons, or they let him go to, 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 to number six, and it becomes a story. Real quick, I've only got a couple of minutes left with you. Uh, you mentioned Joyce Slavkovsky there a couple of seconds ago. Um, what's the off-season plan for Slavkovsky, and, and what's the immediate future looking like for Slavkovsky? Well, I think he's in Slovakia now. He's healing up from the knee injury, which should be all but done. He should be back to regular training. I know there's a plan to come a little earlier back to Montreal than he would have been here a year ago. There is a larger contingent of Canadians that are here, you know, with Nick Suzuki kind of setting the bar and setting his anchor down in Montreal, where he had been in London previously for summers. Uh, now he's here full time. Mm -hmm. Cole said he plans on coming in at some point. I know Caden Gooley in rehabbing his knee injury spent some time here in Montreal. I think there's an idea of getting the band together a little earlier and, and getting players in here as much as possible to take advantage of the people that are around and just being able to skate with the group. This is a young group that is excited to be together. You know, if there was one thing we learned this year yep. about the Canadians, they really like each other. This is a good young group that's growing together. And the more time they can spend together doing that on and off season, the closer and quicker they get to where they want to go and where they want to go is to the very top. Quick 30 seconds, if you have it, on Elliot Friedman's uh, favorite Montreal Canadian, Arbor Jack guy. He got 30 on him? I just think he's going to be, you know, here's a player that's never going to take anything for granted. He's not going to take his spot in the NHL for granted. I think it's very easy to look at him and say he's a 5'6 and going to be a really good one at that. I don't, I would not bet against him being a better player than that. You know, he can do it all. His Everyone looks at the size and the meanness and all that and the grit. He has an offensive ability that's unheralded, in my opinion. He can really do well inside the blue line in the offensive zone. And 
you know, I just think there's a lot of teams that look at that player and say, man, I wish we had a guy like him. And I, I think he's the future is yep. very bright because he'll never take it for granted. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I look at him and I say, one day when the Montreal Canadiens uh, turn the page on this rebuild and are a consistent playoff team, that guy is going to be so valuable. Uh, Eric, thanks as always for stopping by, pal. Uh, always bringing the great information, great perspective. I really appreciate it. Thanks. You be well. We'll, we'll talk soon. My pleasure, Jeff. Yeah, just as you said that last thing on Jack Guy, last thing I'll say, I, I think of like a guy like Ryan Lindgren. You know, I think of a guy who maybe nobody would yep. have looked at him before and said, whoa, he could be a huge contributor. And, well, I think Arbor could be that type of player. Yep. That's a great comparison. Okay, uh, on that, we'll let you go. Uh, Eric Engels from Sportsnet.ca covering the Montreal Canadiens. Don't forget, tonight it is Game 2. You can watch it on CBC and Sportsnet. Uh, the pregame show, Hockey Central, gets underway at 7.30 Eastern with your host, Ron McLean. And then T-Mobile Arena right after 8 o'clock. The puck drops. Florida Panthers facing off against the Vegas Golden Knights. Let's see if Matthew Kachuk calms down the act a little bit. Chances are maybe ever so slightly. Thanks to Eric Engels for stopping by. Keith Jones, Flyers President of Hockey Operations. Uh, Aaron Portsline from The Athletic on the Mike Babcock hiring and Elliot Friedman. Jen Lance, Matt, thank you, thank you, thank you. We're back tomorrow.